And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Heather McTeer, Tony, may not be a name you've heard, but she's certainly someone you should know. Elected mayor of Greenville, Mississippi, at the age of 27. She was led by her experience in that office to become a national leader in the battle for climate action and environmental justice. Under President Obama, she served as a regional administrator for the Environmental Protection Agency and is now a leader of the national movement called Moms Clean Air Force. Heather McTeer Tony also has been a Pritzker Fellow at the University of Chicago's Institute of Politics this spring. We sat down to talk about her journey and her mission. Here's that conversation. Heather McTeer, Tony, it's so great to see you and so great to see you at the Institute of Politics where you've been uh, this spring inspiring a bunch of young people, a new generation of climate activists and others uh, to uh, to uh, take up the mission. And so uh, so it's great to be with you. Thank you for being here. Thanks so much for having me. I'm a, a huge fan first. Thank you. Uh, and so I'm thrilled to be here and to be on the show. And, you know, even more so to have this conversation, climate is truly um, one of the top, has not only garnered a lot of attention, but, you know, it's playing catch up, quite frankly. And, and so yeah. I think it's important for, we to, for us to, to talk about this continually. It is. But before we talk about it, and you are one of the great climate activists and climate justice activists in the country, we need to know how you came to the battle. And so we need to know a little bit about your story, which is uh, an extraordinary story. You come from an extraordinary family. But talk about, uh, talk about Greenville, Mississippi, and talk about the, uh, the McTeer family. There is no better place in the Mississippi Delta in my book <laughs> and uh, I spoken like a former to... mayor, but we'll get to that. <laughs> right, yeah. Well, I tell you, I mean, just from the perspective of not just a former mayor, but of someone who grew up in the churches in Greenville and, and went to public school and can think about all of the, the, the times that I not only um, enjoyed summertime of the levee, but, you know, got in trouble for running up and down to the streets, going back and forth to corner stores in the middle of, you know, Sunday school. So it's just a lot, a lot of good memories um, of that space. Uh, my parents actually came to Mississippi from Baltimore, Maryland, uh, as a part of the voters' rights movement. My, my dad, my mom and dad are retired, but my, uh, at the time, my dad was a civil rights attorney and my mom a public school teacher. And they made a decision to come to uh, Mississippi, originally Mount Bayou, Mississippi, to work for two years. And here we are um, 40 <laughs> plus years later. <laughs> and they have... <laughs> let, let, let me stop you because I want to I want to give uh, the story. It's it's full. Uh, it's full due. Your, your dad, uh, Victor, uh, was one of the first uh, black students at, at what was then called Western Maryland College. Um uh, and it was the, and he went there when he was 16 years old. That's right. That's and right. Was, My dad was 16. And it was the experiences he had there that sort of set him on the course uh, that he took. What was his experience as a young black man at the school where there were, where there were very few people of color? So fortunately, my dad had um, another person with him, Joe Smothers, who I know as my uncle Joe Smothers because he married my mother's sister. Huh? Uh, so uh, the two of them were the first two at Western Maryland College. Uh, my dad on a football scholarship, my uncle Joe on a basketball scholarship. And he certainly at the young age of 16 entered into an environment and a, at a time that was not only fraught with racism, but took a significant amount of boldness and bravery from not only him, but um, my great, great aunt who raised him as her child. Uh, so I think we're talking the mid to late sixties now, which was really, 60s. really a turbulent time in our country. Yes. I remember my dad telling me about when he, the moment he heard that 
Dr. King had been killed and assassinated. And the anger he felt because the members of his team did not feel or have the same significance. It was, it was a joke. Um, and to be the only person, the only black man to feel that in that space in that time um, was profound and deep. But also, I think a part of what urged him to be a part of solution and change. Um, my father was, you know, very, very dedicated to understanding why we needed to help poor people across this country, black people across this country, having access um, to voting rights, but also how we learn uh, the importance of creating equity at the most base level. So even while in college, my dad, you know, went and worked on farms in Puerto Rico during the summer. He uh, worked in the coal mines of Western Virginia as a summer intern. Those were his, his practices. But, you know, it also made him and my mother both committed to raising children who had the same practices. So I think of growing up in a social justice household because that's all I knew. That's what my parents were committed to from their life experience. And that's what they passed on to us. Yeah, we should point out that, and this is really extraordinary, but I guess if you go to college at 16, you go to law school early as well. But when he was 25 years old, he uh, he represented a client who, a teacher who was dismissed uh, in in Greenville for having uh, had a child out of wedlock when she was in when she was a, a young woman, and this case went all the way up to the United States Supreme Court, and he right. he won that case. Did he actually argue that case at the Supreme Court? He did. Katie May Andrews was the case. And he did argue that that case at 25 years old, huh? at 25 years old. Uh, and he has shared with me and my brother, his memories of doing that and of the family sitting there, you know, to, to watch that moment. I couldn't I can't even imagine that now. You know, it's 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 it was baffling to me even then as a, a child and him telling us about it. And, you know, as a kid, you don't really appreciate it until you get older. But now I just think about, you know, being 25, arguing before the United States Supreme Incredible. Court on behalf of a, a unmarried Black woman who got fired because she had a child out of wedlock. Yeah. You know, that in Mississippi. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Again, the courage that it took to do that from my parents' perspective, but also I think from the family's perspective, from the people mm -hmm. who supported him, is the reason why my family's had a such such a commitment to the Mississippi Delta. Because my father will tell you, he he never does this. It's never been him by himself. It's always been the village. It was my mother who was supportive. It was the other attorneys that were in the Delta that um, ensured he uh, had the knowledge and wherewithal to do this work. It's, you know, the people I refer to sort of as, you know, my Uncle Willie, who's now a state senator, but who was a sharecropper and became an attorney and worked alongside my father. It's, you know, Johnny Walls, who, again, grew up in the Mississippi Delta, but was one of the, the men who worked alongside my dad and uh, ended up being a judge. So just coming from these spaces and understanding not only the struggle of people, but the tenacity and the resilience and the will to do well and have and fight for access for all people. To me, that's just a bravery and a courage that uh, I fully intend to uphold and support, not just for myself and the work that I do now in climate justice, but even for my children to come. You point out that, I mean, this was the environment in which you grew up. It was normal for you to spend a Saturday on a march. That's right. There's a, a picture that appeared in a newspaper uh, back in the 80s uh, where my dad was representing Robert Merrick, uh, who was going to be the first African-American superintendent for the Indianola Public School District, but was denied that opportunity. 
So I remember, you know, Saturday morning, we were going to march in Indianola, and there I am on the front lines with my younger brother and my dad and Dr. Merritt's daughter, you know, we're all arm in arm together, uh, marching down the street. Um, I, I asked my father later, were you not afraid? You know, were you not scared of something that might happen to not only you, but us? And he said, of course I was. I was absolutely terrified. Your mother, gosh, you know, having to explain to her, you know, having the kids out here on the front line. Um, but it was at the same time that significant and that important for us all to be a part of the process and to show the people in the community that we needed to stand together. We needed to stand up as one. And when I look at images today of peaceful protests and peaceful mar marches, I understand absolutely why it's a necessity to be present and in that moment at that time, despite whatever else is happening, because making the statement of what's important to the community and, and making the statement of equity and equality sometimes only comes through those types of visual visualizations uh, that I, I was fortunate to learn early. Yeah. I don't want to leave your story. Uh, I'm just going to take a, a brief detour for a second, because I want to ask you about the phrase Black Lives Matter in the context that you just offered. First of all, it doesn't seem that controversial a statement to me in a country where black lives have not mattered equally from the beginning, but it has become controversial. Uh, but tell me what those words mean to you and what what the significance of movements are to you in terms of bringing about change, because we have brought about change in this country, not fast enough, not broadly enough, uh, but because of people like your folks, uh, you know, your, your, your situation is different than that of young people, you know, 50 years ago. Yeah. I think that sometimes it's important to state the obvious. We can see it every single day, but if we don't say it, if we don't verbalize the obvious, then people can continue to ignore it. And when we say Black Lives Matter, we're unfortunately having to state the obvious because it has been ignored for such a long time. And it's the reason why movement and movement building is critically important to continuing to keep in the forefront of our minds those obvious things that can, that can quickly be pushed to the back. Um, we have to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. And Black Lives Matter made a lot of folks uncomfortable even though it was obvious, even though it has been happening across this country, black lives have seemed to not matter when it has come to police brutality. Uh, this year, we are celebrating the centennial of the Tulsa massacre, where for years, people did not even recognize or reckon with that tragic uh, incident that took place and pretended that it didn't happen, let alone matter. Yeah. So the fact that we have to say that. For those who don't know, in the interest of of the point you're making, I mean that whole community was was a, a th was a thriving thriving community, uh, and it was uh, it was destroyed. Absolutely, uh, and that's a bit of there's there's this um, reluctance to reckon with history, but that's how that's that's how we perfect our union. That's how we move forward. So um, anyway, I want to get back to your story. Um, and you went to Spelman College in Atlanta. Uh, and while you were at Spelman, you took some time off and you spent uh, several months in Kenya. Uh, tell me about that and, and how that affected your trajectory and worldview. So I participated in a program called Africa Crossroads, which was a precursor to the Peace Corps, but had a lot of the same uh, elements and often Peace Corps uh, volunteers would come back and lead these summer groups. And, and so I was on one of the first groups that was solely women and that was focused on working with women uh, along the eastern coast of Kenya to help um, develop some entrepreneurial skills, understand maybe how to uh, set a goal and do a particular project. And so I was thrilled, I was excited, and never been to Africa before, and found myself as the only Black American that was traveling with a group of seven white women to Africa. I get to Africa, get to Kenya, and um, 
we were living in a village called Watama, which is halfway between Mombasa and Malindi. And I noticed that my colleagues were treated differently than I was. I, I was fully expecting to go and have this arrival moment that I've come to um, the homeland and I'm having this opportunity to connect. In fact, the women seem to um, almost ostracize me because um, they did not really interact with me in the same way that they did with the white women who were on the group. So, you know, for about a week, I was walking around not knowing what to do, really having a moment and just saying, I don't know how I'm going to exist for the next, for the rest of this summer here. <laughs> um, I got to figure this out. And so I went to um, the woman's house, her name was Anabu, and she was the lady who was the interpreter and the lead for the groups that we were going to be engaging with. And this community was Islamic, part, well, half Islamic and, and half was um, a Gariami tribe, which was a Christian-based tribe. But I went to her home and I have had interactions with different uh, faiths all my life. Um, that's another aspect of, of how I was raised. My godfather was Morton Davis, um, Center of Constitutional Rights in New York. So I grew up with the Jewish part of the family. Um, I had Islamic friends, Hindus. You can just basically put me in any space and I was very comfortable. So I went to her house and I took off my shoes at the front door. And she looked at me and she said, take off your socks too. And so I took off my socks out of respect for the home and for the religious um, beliefs that I knew she had. And when she brought me into the house, she explained to me that they didn't know what I was. They didn't have a word in their language for an African-American. The word in their language for American was white. So the only way they could describe me was a black white person. They didn't know what to do with me. But me coming to her home um, unrequested and me putting myself in a position to say, I, I understand and respect the culture, at least gave them an avenue to have this conversation, right? And it completely changed um, my experience there. It completely changed the way that I looked at different cultures and the way that I looked at myself in terms of being an African-American, what I identified with, how other people saw African-Americans and our experience in the Americas uh, and even uh, the, the Islamic faith. faith. I, I am a born-again Christian, yet I made salat five times a day with these women and they bought me my own burqa and uh, they would take me to market. And when I tell you I had the best time, um, no one in my group could figure out how I got all the best deals when I went to market. And <laughs> <laughs> it was just, it was truly a cultural experience that really taught me a lot about acceptance, but also openness and being willing to um, be yourself, but at the same time, respect others. And I think it, it really helped me when I came back home uh, in politics and being a Democrat, a black woman, an elected mayor in a very conservative state. Yeah, well, I let, let's let's talk about that. You went to law school, not surprisingly. That, that I fought it for years. <laughs> I fought it for years. I was determined I was not going to be like my dad, and and I was exactly like my father. So, <laughs> did he urge you? Did he want you to go to law school? He didn't. He did not. He urged me to do whatever it was that I wanted to do. I think my father secretly chuckled that he knew. I would end up in law school, um, but he really encouraged me to, to do what I wanted to do. Uh, so, you know, he's like, if you want to go to law school, look, go to law school. <laughs> uh -huh. Don't find what you want to do. <laughs> We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now back to the show. You did end up in the family business as it as it was. You went to work at his law firm after you graduated from law school. And then at 27 years old, you got elected mayor of Greenville. First of all, 
That's an audacious move to run for mayor of a city at the age of 27. More so, I would guess, uh, being a, a not only 27, but a 27-year-old black woman, which was pathbreaking in many ways. Talk about how that all happened and then the experience of, of actually finding yourself as the, you know, what are you, what's the proverbial thing? The dog who caught the car, you, you, you get elected. (laughs) You get elected. You know, thinking about the trajectory of my family and my dad, it's not really that surprising that, you know, for to be the daughter of a man who argued before the Supreme court at 25, that at 27, I'd be running for mayor. Um, That's true. And and there's (laughs) there's some similarity in that. I think my idea of it was why not? What 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 is what what is the stop here? Which is very similar to my father. Um, Why not? What why why could I not do what it is that I want to do? Why not do directly for this? And why did you want to do that? Because I felt very strongly that for so long people in the Mississippi Delta had watched their children leave. They'd watched the best and brightest of the community leave this community, leave the state and go to New York, California, Texas, Georgia to make their success and not have the benefit of that talent um, to help at home because home was so challenging and so difficult. And so even in the decision to come back home and work with my father, it was a decision to say, I want to be a part of what makes Mississippi successful. Narrative around what do, um, what do solid, strong Mississippians really look like? And um, when I got home, there had been a lot of conversation about local politics. I knew both of the men who had run for mayor before and were denied the opportunity because they lost the election. A little sketchy about if he actually lost the election or not. There was some questions around that, but um, I knew both of them. They had been a part of my life. Um, I knew their children. And so there was this sense almost of hopelessness that it couldn't be done. Was the mayor, the incumbent mayor, an African-American when you ran? No, the incumbent mayor was a white man we had never had an African-American mayor um, before I won. We had two African-American men who had run and lost. I see. But no one who had been successful in a city that was not only in the Mississippi Delta, but was over 70% African-American, maybe right around 69, 70% African-American. So we had Black city council members, but had never had a Black mayor elected citywide. Yeah. So when you got when you won, what was the realization that now you were in charge? And there, I know from my own experiences, having been involved in a lot of campaigns, there's an exhilaration to to getting elected, and then you face the the you know the myriad challenges of actually governing. And I presume that the challenges were greater uh, for someone who had just broken down these barriers i mean there's there is a there are there are challenges that uh that pathbreakers face that others don't yeah it it was so yes the night of the election was awesome it was wonderful i remember you know seeing my dad and just giving him a hug and we both just being in tears because there was there wasn't anything else we could say it was just a powerful moment. But I remember also waking up the next morning to a front page that said, um, that declared both myself and the former mayor uh, winners because they said that we had to recount the votes. Um, I know for two weeks that we sat in City Hall while they went through and counted ballots um, to certify the election because there were there was this denial that this 27-year-old Black woman had beat a two-time incumbent white man uh, to be mayor of a city. And so while there was a moment of exhilaration, immediately the moment of reality stepped in of, they're going to fight you tooth and nail to actually take this seat. Um, 
And they did. And uh, it was fraught with um, questions. It was fraught with threats. Uh, at the same time that I was elected, um, shortly thereafter, the first black sheriff for the county was elected. And I remember, you know, having a conversation where he was like, look, either you're going to have a secure, some kind of security or I'm going to assign somebody to go to the bathroom with you. and You're not going to like it, but we're not going to lose the first black person we have elected as mayor um, because you got people who don't like that in the state. And he was right. So it was a time that while it was very. Were there threats? I mean. Oh, yes. Absolutely. There were I, I, there were threats all the time. I would get written letters. I had people who followed me. I had I, I came to the office one day and there were these little notes scattered out all outside of my window outside the office. There was always a threat of something that was happening. And it was hard because no no administration before me ever had to deal with that. And this is, you know, prior to me too. This is prior to um, a lot of people taking serious threats against elected officials. So this is certainly prior to the Obama era. There weren't very many women in office, certainly none of my age. So it was common. And um, even though some people didn't believe it, I still had to deal with it. Uh, and that, that was the reality. I'm sure you also had to deal with something else, which I've, you know, I've been, I was lucky enough to work for President Obama, but also many other uh, uh, African-American officials who got elected for the first time as mayors or governor. Or, and what I came to realize, actually, you know, when I when I when it really crystallized for me, I should have thought more deeply about it earlier. I, but I was actually I, I did a, a, a television podcast with Justice Sotomayor and I told her I, I had this exchange with her when she was appointed or when the president was thinking of appointing her to the Supreme Court. And I said, what worries you the most? And she said, I worry about not measuring up. And, I, you know, it wasn't that she didn't have confidence in her in her ability, but I think she knew that she cared that she carried with her the hopes of others that she didn't want to fail as as a pathbreaker because that would be a setback for everybody who was going to come after her. And uh, it gave me more insight into uh, the guy I was working for, uh, the president. And I'm sure you must have felt that as well. Oh, absolutely. It was a deep sense and need to not just be successful for the sake of being successful, but be good and good enough that the next person who tried to run wouldn't have to face the same challenges. And so while I, while I would celebrate being first, I always said, this should be a short-lived celebration. We should be celebrating the second, third, and fourth to come along. And so there was always an extra pressure to make sure that the work I was doing was not just for me. And that whatever the difficulties were, I would press through in a way that um, kept the door open for others. And that was hard. You know, that was that's not easy work for anyone to do. Uh, and certainly, you know, the side that a lot of folks don't see. You asked about the initial sort of reality of governing. Within the first week, I got to office and realized our, our, our city had no money. We didn't know that before. So there's a great front page picture of me and the city councilman, uh, Kenny Gines from Ward 1, sitting, looking at a budget <laughs> and realizing that the city was bouncing payroll checks, that we, we had no money and we had to figure out what we were going to do. That's a hell of a way to start. Uh, coming into an office, not only as the first, but being so young, people didn't think you knew how to balance a checkbook, let alone uh, a city budget. It reminds me of the cartoon when uh, Obama, maybe it was an Onion headline when he got inaugurated and we took office in the middle of this, the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression. And the headline was, Black Man Gets Worst Job in America. So, right. <laughs> so right. you must have felt that way. Well, you you did get the city out of 
of debt and you um you you got some major infrastructure projects done there and um you were i know head of the national conference of black mayors i mean you you had a very accomplished uh couple of terms there but um probably at some personal cost to get all that done absolutely absolutely it it all comes at a cost um and i learned the hard way that the job and people will kill you you know the stress of it uh will will be very difficult okay uh, had my fair share of stints in the hospital for being so overworked and so overwhelmed with stress. I remember one time um, my physician uh, said, I-, I couldn't figure out why I was in the ICU. He was like, I'm, in, I'm, I'm putting you in ICU so that people will leave you alone. <laughs> I know that it was craziness because, you know, I one side of my body literally went numb. They thought I was going to have mm. a stroke. And here I am, um, you know, I'm not even 35 yet. And this was happening. It's like you—you you can't keep doing this. Um, it cost me a marriage. Uh, I was divorced while I was in office. I went through a very public divorce. Mm. I lost a child. I had a miscarriage. Mm. Um, I had significant personal issues that, believe it or not, all women have at some point in their life. Mm-hmm. But for some reason, I figured that oh, I'm, you know, being a mayor you are dealing with it in a different way. And I did not accept the reality that life happens, period. I will say that I had some great mentors that I could call on and um, they would tell me to, you know, get it together. (laughs) You're gonna be all right. Um, One, and and this is outside of my parents. Of course, my parents were always there and supportive. Um, Renee Ferguson in, in Chicago was mm-hmm. a great, wonderful mentor. It's like, get it together, sister. Let's just write a press release. You'll be fine. Carolyn Kilpatrick. You know, I, I should interrupt just for a second. You know that Renee Ferguson, who was a broadcaster in in Chicago, was all, you know who else she was a mentor to? Pete Buttigieg. Did you know that? Yes, <laughs> she reminds me when I talk to her. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she does, and she's a wonderful mentor. You need people like that in your life who keep you focused. And she was one of those people. Um, she's just been a family friend for years. And so she was one of those folks I could call on. Uh, at the time, Congresswoman Carolyn um, Kilpatrick, I remember, you know, calling her saying, you know, crying like, oh, my gosh, you know, this is happening in my personal life. And she's like, look, I went through a bankruptcy, a divorce, and I still got reelected. You'll be fine. Wrap it up, wipe your tears, um, because this is what we do. And the strength of Black women, of getting things done, of um, knowing that we we do need these moments to not only be vulnerable, but to be very real with one another, I was extremely grateful for. And that was something that helped me to own my space, own my value, own my authenticity, and was a perfect setup for when I met the person who put me into the environmental space, which was Administrator Lisa Jackson. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I want to talk to you about that because uh, one of the things that your your uh, tenure as mayor introduced you to was this profound issue of uh, environmental injustice. And uh, talk talk to me about and also the looming menace of uh, climate, which you guys experienced with dramatic weather events there that were devastating for your city. Talk to me about your uh, your dawning sort of awareness, because you started off uh, life as an activist. You were raised to be an activist. And now this issue became part of that basket and really connected to the social justice issues that you were raised with. Absolutely. It was um, when I really was digging into infrastructure. Um, President Obama had just been elected, and when he was campaigning, he had come through Greenville. So, you know, I had an opportunity when he was a senator to show him some of the issues around water infrastructure. And then after he was elected and Lisa Jackson was appointed, um, in in that moment, we ended up on the front page of the Washington Post um, for water. I had been 
truly working on water infrastructure and knew in my heart of hearts that this was one of the issues that was an economic engine and had to do with really strengthening the foundation of infrastructure throughout the Delta and garnered enough attention to get not only a Washington Post story, but Lisa Jackson to come and visit. And while she was visiting and we were touring, she pulls me to the side and she's like, you know, this is environmental justice work, right? And I said, no, ma'am, it's not. I'm just, you know, a mayor trying to get streets, you know, sewer from my city. She's like, no, 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 no. You're doing environmental justice work. <laughs> and she began to explain to me um, how it was connected to the environment in a way that I had not seen before. And after those conversations, there were two things that I felt. One, I felt angry. I felt angry at the fact that for all these years, I had been raised in a justice, but a very agrarian society. And no one had shown or I had never seen myself as an environmental person. And the reality was every space around the Mississippi Delta, every connection from our levee points to our uh, our agriculture, to our water, to the food and music, every single aspect was steeped in environment and climate justice. And I didn't know it. And so I felt like, you know, here I am doing this work and, I, and you know, no, how did I miss this? I was really you know, angry to a point that it had not been, been seen. But then I got this urgency to say, this is a huge opportunity for us. A, because recognizing that the climate crisis in and of itself could have a dramatic impact on the very face of our community. Just the way the Mississippi Delta has been shaped has been by water, the river, and how that water has been ebbed, flowed, and controlled even by the Army Corps of Engineers. So knowing that the climate crisis in and of itself was going to put more water, more floods into this space, it, it was a critical uh, area that we had to address for the topography, the ecology, and the environment, the people, period. I think you dealt with two 500-year floods in your eight years as mayor, and I'm no math major, but that doesn't seem, seem right. right. It doesn't seem logical. It doesn't seem possible, especially when you put those two 500 years, even within a shorter time period of the eight years that I served. Both of those happened um, at the end of the first term and through the, the second term. So, you know, it was back to back. But so much was learned about not only the uh, vulnerability of the community, but the opportunities here to really change the wealth of the community. If we really began talking about climate and opportunities to, to change um, how we do business, how we put in resilient infrastructure, um, really going after areas that would put people in a position to do well, we could really shift what was um, the impoverished Delta. And, and I'm very proud that even today, though I'm not in office, um, some of the seeds of what were planted years ago, we're starting to see now. Uh, there is a 100 megawatt solar farm planned already and ground broken on in the Mississippi Delta to help provide renewable energy to these homes and communities. I mean, this was this is groundbreaking stuff, and that's not the only one. You know, there's more that have been planned, but this is this is no longer in the idea phase. This is in the actual groundbreaking jobs created. This is happening phase, and that's the type of thing that lets me know I wasn't crazy all those years ago. Even though I'm sure people thought, you know, okay, black woman in Mississippi doing environment. Really? Um, but Lisa saw it. Lisa Jackson saw it. And she saw enough in me that she asked me to be the chair of the local government advisory committee for EPA. Uh, I was all excited. I, I would have been thrilled just to be a member, but she asked me to chair it. And, and I was just in awe. Thank you so much. And she said, hold on. You don't know what you've gotten into. You don't know what you don't know yet. And at that moment, she became mentor status for me, particularly since two weeks after I was appointed, the BP oil spill happened. <laughs> yeah. I remember that well. I remember it well. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files.
And now, back to the show. I live in Chicago, obviously, and um, but wherever I've gone, you know, it's pretty clear that you see big polluting kinds of enterprises, whether they be power plants or refineries or in places that are oftentimes surrounded by communities of color and of poor people. So when we talk about environmental justice, that can't be ignored. The lead in the water pipes can't be ignored. Asthma and all the, you know, the high incidence of asthma in inner city communities and poor communities can't be ignored. I know that's all part of a piece for you. Absolutely. It, it just the intersections of racial injustice and inequities in our country um, through the lens of climate. We can directly tie every social justice issue of our country to climate in some way, shape, form or fashion. And so whether or not it is today's heat islands, which come as a result of uh, systemic racist housing policy of the 50s and 60s that created, you know, these red line districts and these housing developments that were concrete blocks, quite frankly, uh, where you had black and brown people who were put in places where you have no trees, um, just strictly concrete, uh, th- no sidewalks, you know, no, um, no parks. Uh, and that was intentional. That is climate. That is housing policy, but it's also directly related to the increases of uh, heat disparities, extreme heat, even in our urban communities like Chicago or Richmond or Detroit or New York. Uh, It is how we are dealing right now with higher rates of asthma and cancer and heart disease uh, in black and brown and indigenous communities because we are more likely than anyone else to be within one a mile of an oil and gas um, facility, an emitting facility. Uh, Even we go back to the early 80s, which is where technically people put the start of the uh, environmental justice movement in um, Warren County, North Carolina, a, a black community fighting, literally laying on the ground to keep trucks from coming in to establish a landfill next to their community. To this day, these communities are still fighting for environmental, uh, fighting against environmental injustices in the way of CAFOs, control animal operating feed, um, hog farms that establish, that have been established in, in these communities, but create huge problems with respect to environmental injustice. Uh, one of the things that I found is that we have ignored the environmental and climate justice impacts for something else, not putting it as important. And so instead of saying that climate and environmental justice is one of the issues, one of the boxes that sits on the table, I say it is the table. Everything sits on climate and environment when it comes to black and brown and indigenous communities. How we deal with it is what we should be addressing now. You became, in 2014, the EPA Regional Director for Alabama, Florida, Georgia, Kentucky, North Carolina, Mississippi, South Carolina, Tennessee, along with six uh, uh, tribal nations, and and I think half the African Americans in the country were living in your, in your regions. So at once, you were dealing with these issues of, of environmental justice climate justice and you were you were rep- representing or overseeing a region that probably was feeling more of the effects of of climate change of any region in the country with the possible exception of the west with the wildfires but you were really in the in the seat of all the action there it was the seat of all the action and it was constant changing action all the time because accompanying one of the most diverse regions in the country that you're right holds a quarter of the nation's population and certainly has the majority of of the african-american population hbcus Uh, but i also sort of like to think i had uh, everything from disney world to the tennessee mountains 
So it was, you know, one of the, the most diverse regions. It was very, very important for us to show people in the region that their thoughts and their concerns around environment were just as important as those to people who were in the West. Because there were stereotypes around the Southern states, the Southern region, that particular region is the Southeast region, region four. There were stereotypes because of how much climate and climate policy had been politicized. So people um, wanted to know first that we were going to do the things to protect them, that every part of the agency is. And the way I would explain it to people is if you, it was like this, if you drink it, you stand on it or you breathe it, we make sure it's safe. (laughs) That was the easiest way to tell folks um, what we did. (laughs) It's pretty, pretty clear as mud. Um, But even more so share the language of the Southeast with the rest of the world. We all, while people may not say the words climate change, they knew certainly that something was different. We knew that we were experiencing more water in the storms and they were coming more frequently. Um, People knew that the the seasons in terms of hunting were changing and the agriculture was changing, even to the extent that coming in and out of the Atlanta airport, the jet stream shifts were happening. The Airline Stewardess Association talked about the importance of understanding the impacts of climate change for flight and for flight patterns. So the way that we had these conversations looked different than the other parts of the country, but they were just as important. And I took took to heart um, both my experience of being a Southerner, but also an African-American. Uh, I took to heart the importance of being able to explain that story, to talk about that in a way that uh, connected it to the rest of the world, as well as elevated the value of Southern and minority voices. You left, obviously, at the change of administrations in 2017, and you went to work for an organization called Moms Clean Air Force. You're now the national field director for them. I want to talk to you about that in, in, in a second. But as you were doing this work over the last four years, there was another administration and a very different philosophy about environmental protection. Uh, tell me what the palpable effect of that has been. It's been seeing the engagement of local people who who stood in, who stayed in, who said we're still in. Coming out of the Obama administration, um, and at the moment, you know, reckoning that we're going to have a very, very different administration moving forward. It was a point, I think, for a lot of people, myself included, to say, all right, we've got to make a decision. The next four years are going to be hellacious. Um, All the environmental policy that we have worked so hard for could go up in smoke if we don't stay involved, if we don't stay committed and find a way to stay connected to this fight. Um, For me, it was joining moms. I um, am remarried, have been married for almost 10 years now. And um, right when uh, we were getting ready, we're wrapping up the end of the administration, I was pregnant with my my rainbow baby, my son, Devin, who is the only child I have given physical birth to. <laughs> and, and Gina sort of teased me. She's like, you would pick, this is like really a perfect time, Heather. You picked a great time to have a baby. <laughs> uh, so I, I was pregnant with Devin at the end of the administration. And it, it opened my eyes in a different way. I'd already always been sensitive to the issues of mothers and children, Um, and understanding those different impacts, particularly coming from the Delta region. Um, But when I got pregnant, I was pregnant during Zika. And Zika was the virus that if you were bitten by a mosquito and you were pregnant, you could have some very um, challenging um, impacts for for your unborn child. Uh, so, and that was for the southern, southern region. If you were in a hot region, I could not travel to half of my region because of Zika. Um, I was breastfeeding when the Flint water crisis happened. So as one of the environmental justice leaders of the organization of, of EPA, um, I couldn't, couldn't go. Um, I remember very vividly engaging with women who were farm workers 
uh, in Florida who were Latina and who talked about how they could not hug their children when they came home for fear of pesticides that were on their clothes and not knowing what that interaction would be like with their children. And being a new mother, I could not imagine not holding or hugging my child. So the way that I looked at these interactions changed. And uh, moms was a wonderful way for me to uh, do this work. It, it, I started off as a consultant. We came up with this program called Moms and Mayors. Perfect fit for me. Yes. And, uh, <laughs> you know, as a way to help moms engage with their local uh, government on environmental issues. And I just stayed. I went from being the um, the organizer, consultant, to being the national field director, which then changed to the senior director, and I'm now a senior advisor and the climate justice liaison at the Environmental Defense Fund. But it's been an evolution of um, really deeply engaging in the community engagement experience and showing how that in and of itself is so critical to implementing climate policy across the country and the globe. You yourself have noted that when you see sort of the faces of the environmental movement, there, there are very few African-American faces. And uh, I'm wondering why you think that is and how you can change that. Uh, and I have, uh, I have a follow-up question to that about just generally how you make, you know, about the, the problems of selling the need for climate action. But what about the leadership issue and penetrating the community? I think it's very interconnected with how we see um, community engagement growing across this country and the engagement of people with the electoral process and being in these spaces of making decisions. Uh, and we have truly seen a, a big jump in that over the past, I'd say, 18 months since COVID and, and the deaths of George Floyd and Ahmaud Aubrey and Breonna Taylor and all of this that has been revealed to us, um, the need for this engagement in such a diverse way has really opened the eyes of a lot of people such that they are looking at how not only we become more active, but what are the barriers to that? And so right now, we are um, really grappling with how to get more people involved in climate policy, in the decision-making process, in electoral pro uh, politics, when we know voter suppression is very real. For the climate environmental community, we have to engage in vote voter suppression because the people who are more likely to vote for climate policy are black and brown people. Just about every exit survey and study has shown us that black and brown people will vote for climate policy. Um, these are communities that are impacted by extreme weather in ways that others are not. And these are communities that are more likely than others to be suppressed in voting for these very policies. So it, it's, again, these over, overlaps and intersections where we can no longer afford to be siloed as the environmental community, but we have to engage in voting. We have to engage in um, making sure people get appointed to boards and commissions on a local, state, and a federal level. And, you know, say, look, even if you think that just sitting on a board in your, your local community, if you're an environmentalist, you should only be on the tree board. Absolutely not. That's not how it works. Um, people who are environmentally minded, climate-minded, minded, need to be in every space because as decisions are made on how funding is spent, on how planning is done in communities and states, as how uh, emissions are reduced, what plants get permits. People that have an environmental mindset must be in these spaces. And we have to uh, of providing and showing the access and door to it. I was involved 10 years ago uh, with the president in, in, in trying to push uh, climate action forward. Um, and um, what what we confronted, and I think what we still confront, is that the existential crisis of climate change um, butts up against in the minds of communities where people have extracted uh, fossil fuels from the ground for generations, or have you know built built uh, pipelines, or and so on. 
an existential fear of economic change. And it strikes me that um, uh, sometimes we approach these issues with moral force without a lot of empathy for people who are who fear they're going to get caught up in the switches and that they're going to lose their livelihoods or they won't be able to make the kind of money that they're making doing what they're uh, doing is how do we how do we change the dialogue so that people feel like they're not going to be abandoned in these changes we keep talking we're persistent and i think that's that's the key it's it's the persistence it's the consistency it is the multitude of conversations that are coming from so many different angles it's it's us really embracing this whole community approach we've, we've heard we've, we've heard biden talk about the the all of government has to be an accompanying all of community approach which keeps this at the forefront of the conversation the problem has been that the the you know the other folks on the other side have have tried to take over this conversation of what what if what will happen if and there are all these negatives um it is if we don't um if, if we move into renewable energy then you won't be able to find a, a gas station they want to come in and all the environmentalists want to make sure that you know you won't be able to buy gas at your local kroger or walmart or at your you know corner store and there are these fear tactics that come in and, and unfortunately that's what we've seen across our country um for the past uh 10 or so years is um fear tactic that has been impressed on everything that has to do with um, environment and opportunity for how we're changing. Uh, it is the fact that this is the existential crisis. It is the fact that the International Panel on Climate uh, Change has said that if we don't do something within the next 10 years, we're going to have an irreversible effect, right? So you hear all these doom and gloom stories. We have to do a better job of showing the other side, which is, we're on the verge of having and being in the midst of the next big revolution. Um, like we saw the change to the industrial revolution, we're on the cusp of moving into a green revolution that could provide tons of opportunity and jobs and different forms of wealth building that we have not seen for the past hundred years. And so when we change the lens to talk about the hope, change the lens to talk about, let's let's jump into these opportunities here, right now, that are available right now. We're not talking about 10 months from now. We're not talking about five years from now. We're talking about right now, today, being able to start a business where you put in EV infrastructure in homes, that you, you know, can become an electrician, and now this is a whole new business that did not even exist 10 years ago. These are the spaces that I think we should talk more about um, with not only uh, families around the kitchen table, but college students, young people, technology, the innovation that's coming in every sector. And look, we don't need to stop at just the, the, the techie side. I'm not a tech and science person. I have a law degree. I'm not you know, an environmental engineer. Um, but guess what? Environmental law is a big thing. <laughs> I wish I'd have known that when I was in law school. Uh, <laughs> uh, climate psychologists, people who can have conversations with um, how we're dealing with the impacts of climate and what we should do and shift in terms of our behavior. Climate sociologists, how communities are growing and changing with sea level rise. And as a result, how do we advise cities and towns on how to plan appropriately for this. Let's stop planning to, you know, go with the aliens and leave the planet. Let's start planning again here on how we protect it. And on top of that, use the experience that's been here. One, one thing we haven't talked about is the wealth of experience with and, and advice from our indigenous community. I was so thrilled to see Deb Holland appointed as the Secretary of the Interior because finally we're seeing an indigenous woman who, whose very culture is one of being protective of our natural lands, actually being the person in charge of protecting our natural lands. There's so much that we can learn um, as opposed to being afraid. Let's figure out how to make this truly a transformative opportunity. Well, it's an important task and you bring a lot of energy and experience to it. And uh, it's a pleasure to 
be with you, uh, Heather McTeer, Tony. Uh, wish you well, and thank you again for inspiring uh, young people at the Institute of Politics. Thank you so much for having me. Great to be with you, Heather. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Jeff Fox, Hannah McDonald, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.